On this week's episode of The Shakeout, we take you back to the incredible story of Adam Campbell, an elite ultra runner who in the summer of 2016 fell over 200 feet while running in the Selkirk Mountains, and not only lived to tell the tale, but also came back less than a year to race again. But before we bring you that conversation, here are a few words from another running podcast that we think you'll enjoy. Hey there, I'm Sarah Bowen Shea, host of the Another Mother Runner podcast, which mixes chit chat with expert interviews peppered with a lot of laughs. The Another Mother Runner podcast is like a best running friend who keeps the conversation going even on the uphills. Recent guests have included Catherine Switzer, Alicia Montano, Bart Yasso, Peter Sagel, and Magdalena Louis Boulay. One of my co-hosts is a celeb in her own right, too, Tish Hamilton, formerly of the Runner's World podcast. Listen to a new episode of the Another Mother Runner podcast every week on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Or start off with a deep dive of our back catalog with more than 300 previous episodes to keep you company on the run. Many happy miles. Adam Campbell, thanks for joining the show. Yeah, thanks a lot for having me. I'm really looking forward to this. So, Adam... um, you're an ultra runner and you've been an elite level ultra runner for a number of years, a mountain runner. Uh, but last year you had an extraordinary and, you know, very, uh, uh, terrifying accident that you wrote about for, for us in the magazine as well. Uh, tell us a little bit about that day and what happened. Yeah. So, um, yeah, you're right. I've, um, I've been ultra running for a number of years, but over the last few years, my, my interests have really shifted um, sort of over towards more mountaineering style objectives. So taking my my fitness and combining it with more technical mountain objectives and trying to do these big mountain link ups fast. There's a, there's a general trend in mountain running right now uh, towards doing that. You guys you see guys like Killian Journey and names like Nick Elson who are who are doing that, and there's a real appeal to me in that. So. Um, you know, using your the fitness you gain from competition and applying it to mountain objectives because you can you can do some really cool stuff out there. And we live in such an incredible country. Um, it, it's it's a really neat way of exploring a lot of terrain. Um, so last summer, uh, Nick Elson and Dakota Jones from Durango, Colorado, who's one of the best um, American ultra runners as well, uh, we were attempting to do something called the Horseshoe Traverse in Rogers Pass. And essentially, it's linking up 14 peaks in Rogers Pass, and these are some of the most iconic mountains in Canada. Basically, the birthplace of Canadian mountain, uh, mountaineering and alpinism. So it's really, really cool. It's just a beautiful, beautiful like horseshoe line. Like you, you start it, you're saying at the start of it, you can see all the peaks that you're about to cover. It's really, really spectacular vista. Um, so you know, the, we, uh, we were doing it on August 31st last year, and the weather was perfect. And we started out about six o'clock in the morning and we were making really good uh, ground. We covered four peaks already by 10 a.m. And we were heading up something called Eisenhower Tower, which isn't even really a main mountain on the feature. It's sort of like a, a, another little bump along the way. You know, these, these things are never, you know, they look like teeth. Um, it's not like a perfect, uh, not all peaks are symmetrical out there. And, um, and Nick and Dakota were ahead of me and they were, they were moving faster than me at this point in the day. And so they were just ahead of me on the on the feature, and um, all of a sudden, um, as I was moving up towards them, I and this is to describe it as quite a vertical sheer face, but it's a series of like ledges heading down from it. It's called quartzite. So there's these big blocks, basically, like a big bit of it looked like a Lego mountain if you were to make one. 
And as I was making mm. my way up towards them, um, one of the blocks uh, that they'd just gone through moments before me pulled out on me and uh, my feet weren't completely secure at that moment. And it was about the size of a small refrigerator, like a little bar refrigerator. It pulled and as I weighted it and um, it started to slip and I felt myself falling backwards, I knew it was coming with me. And I I was in a very, very vulnerable position at that moment. And, and I, I assumed I was dead because I felt myself falling backwards. And I essentially bounced from ledge to ledge to ledge um, several hundred feet, um, you know, estimated about 200, maybe more feet down this mountain. And I was basically cartwheeling from ledge to ledge to ledge. And I was conscious of the whole thing, which was horrific. I remember at one moment, um, uh, sort of slowing down a little bit and like, Oh my God, I'm alive. And then starting to fall again. I'm like, Oh my God, I'm dead. And I, and I still get these really, really vivid flashbacks to seeing, um, the mountains behind me, the horizon, um, flipped upside down and and I, I remember thinking I was like that is a very odd thing to see and that's probably the last thing I'm ever going to see and I I tumbled for I'm not sure exactly how long and I ended up um, stopping face first in a pile of scree which is uh, screaming uh, loose rocks at the base of the mountain and um, I slowed there unfortunately I did because there's another series of cliffs only a few feet away from me and if I'd kept falling who knows what would have happened right. but I, I found myself lying face down and um I I was conscious, but I wasn't, you know, I was obviously in quite a lot of shock, and I pushed myself up and over onto my back. I didn't want to be face down, and I remember just seeing blood in front of me. And um, after rolling myself on my back, I was like, okay, you can't do that. you got to be really careful here. And I was like, and then I just did a, I started doing a self-assessment. I was like, you have to stay calm. And so I wiggled my toes. I was like, I, I wiggled my toes. I'm not paralyzed, which I, sh- I should have known by, because I could push myself <laughs> over. But um, mm-hmm. I, and then I, you know, I, I knew that my uh, my ankle was really, really sore. I knew that my hip was really sore. And I knew that something was wrong with my back. Um, and Nick and Dakota uh, made their way down to me quite cautiously, and um, because they didn't want to have an accident themselves. Unfortunately, I was I was with it enough to tell them where my cell phone was on me and where my inReach is, which is a, a like a locator beacon, to be able to call search and rescue. And uh, Nick was able to run up to the previous peak where we noticed that there was a cell signal. And Dakota stayed with me, and Nick called search and rescue from there. And uh, luckily, I mean, one, we, we've got this incredible search and rescue network in Canada. And it's all free, which is which is amazing. Um, and highly, highly skilled and trained people. They were doing a, a, um, a training mission in the area. They were actually looking for unex, um, unexploded avalanche bombs because they, they bomb that area in the winter. Right. And uh, so within, within an hour and a half, they'd flown over us and spotted us. And um, they had to fly back to Revelstoke to go uh, pick up two people to long line them in, which means they drag them under the helicopter in these long metal lines um, because they can't land a helicopter where it was. It was far too dangerous. And luckily you do these things. We made sure the weather was perfect to attempt an objective like this so they they could fly the helicopter. Um, So within a few hours I'd been uh, rescued out of there and I I got helicoptered out under the the helicopter, which was a terrifying experience as well because Mm-hmm. You know, you're I was fully packaged up, basically, uh, like a burrito dangling underneath this helicopter. Yeah. I remember just looking up at this line coming up from me, and you know, you're in, you're in a lot of shock. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and I was like, oh my god, this is how I'm actually going to die. <laughs> this line is going to break on me. Mm-hmm. Um, and they flew they flew me out to the Rogers Pass Visitor Center, where there was um, a Stars Air ambulance a crew waiting for me, and there they triaged me and um, were able to 
take care of my vitals because the search and rescue people, their only job is to get you out of the area that you're in um, and to take you somewhere where they can do a proper assessment. They don't give you any drugs or anything. Hmm. And wow. um, yeah, and having talked to the search and rescue people and the medical crew, they said they've never seen somebody who is in a such bad physical state as me, but who is still as alert. So despite the fact that I hit my head multiple times, I fortunately, um, I was still conscious and so I was able to really communicate with them. And I think that helped, hmm. um, the situation quite a lot. And from there they, um, so once they triaged me and, um, sort of controlled my pain and done a bit of an initial assessment, they were able to fly me to, to Kamloops, which was another hour, hour and a half helicopter right away. When I was taken into emergency there and I was in hospital, it was in surgery for over eight hours. Uh, and it turned out I'd broken my thoracic spine, so my T8 to T11. And then I had broken my iliac crest of my hip, which means that the top of my hip bone had sheared right off. And essentially my foot had separated from the bottom of my uh, shin. Um, um, so it was, yeah, it was quite horrific. I guess. Uh, but so- I, sorry, sorry. Um, and I, I had an amazing medical uh, crew right there, unfortunately. And so they were able to, to give me world-class care. So during this period, I do remember we uh, interviewed your mom and um, we talked to you a little later about your recovery. Give us a little bit of a snippet of um, the recovery process from there. So you have this traumatic accident and you end up in the hospital. Um, Tell us how the next few months went from there. Yeah. um, So, I mean, the first thing that happened when I came out of surgery is, um, you know, I I asked the doctor, I was like, you know, am I paralyzed? Am I ever going to be able to to walk again or ever going to run again. And I said, yeah, you shouldn't be able to make a full recovery. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I, I didn't entirely know what that meant. You know, I was like, because a full recovery and just being able to walk was already a win. But like, no, you should be able to make a full recovery and you should be able to maintain a good level of athleticism. But, you know, I also didn't know if they fully understood what that meant to me. You know? Right, exactly. Um, you, know, like, you know, like I'm a professional like mountain athlete. You know, like I, I, I like to to really test myself at like the extremes of probably what's healthy. Right. Um, they're they're probably thinking, yeah. you know, when they tell people, oh, you'll be you'll be making a full recovery and you'll be active again. They're thinking like you'll do a little bit of jogging, maybe you'll go for a swim occasionally. They're not thinking sure. you're going to like, you know, summit a peak of a, you know, 14,000 foot mountain. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, and to be fair, I, you know, I, um, if that's all I could do and that's all I was physically able to do, then I'd still be out doing that. And I'd be, you know, I'd have to learn how to be content with that. Right. Um, but that's not my initial thought, you know, because an hour or like, you know, the day before I consider myself a world-class athlete, <laughs> you know, um, so over time, that would have been a, a that would have been a different emotional transition. Uh, but from there in the hospital, I had um, some really bad complications to the to the pain drugs I was on, as well as my body was just in shock from the from surgery. So, so my whole digestive system essentially shut down, which was incredibly painful. Um, yeah. and, and I wasn't able to take in any food for the next ten days. So I, I really atrophied in a very big way. And like lost all the muscle mass basically through my entire body, and but I also at the same time swelled up uh, to you know like four times my regular size because my body was just it wasn't able to process any of the fluids in it, and that was an inc- that was incredibly painful, more painful than any of the surgeries that I had, and I, that was a, that was a horrific process. But finally they were able to stabilize that, and um, 
from there, about two weeks later, I was able to take my first couple steps, which was really, really emotional and quite profound. But I mean, my first steps were literally two steps to the, to the bathroom. <laughs> I remember <laughs> having the physio come into my into my um, to my hospital room, which I was actually sharing with a few other people and saying, "We need to work on your endurance, you know, so you can go to the bathroom." <laughs> so, oh, man. Like, oh, so, so basically, I, my endurance was going from two steps to four to five steps. Um, which is, you know, like a real ego, um, it was an interesting ego challenge. And then, um, from there, you know, I, uh, was able to take, you know, as a classic athlete, you know, it was like first I was able to walk like half the, the hallway and then it'd be going to walk around the hallway and it'd be like, I'm going to walk twice around the hallway. And so I slowly started to move again. And, uh, when I was released from hospital, but two weeks later, and uh, drove back to, to Canmore and you know, from there I'd go and do a 400 meter walk, an 800 meter walk, a mile walk. But something wasn't quite there in my foot and I went and saw my doctor and he thought I had a, um, a, a it's called a, a Liz Frank fracture my foot. And so he then said I had to go back in a wheelchair for six weeks to, yeah. to avoid like really long-term complications, which was emotionally very difficult on me because um, I was really enjoying these walks. and it felt like I was making progress and then to suddenly be told that I had to go back in a wheelchair was taking a step back and, you know, classic athlete, you don't ever want to be going backwards. You want to always feel like you're moving forwards. Um, so that was once again, a really hard time for me. Unfortunately, I had, uh, um, my fiance, Laura, uh, there with me who is, she's a doctor and she was really able to, it, just having her presence there, like really calling me and, you know, we were able to talk through the whole process. And the same thing I was in the hospital. It's really powerful having an advocate there to help, help you deal with what's going on. Cause it's quite confusing and scary. And, uh, my mom was also able to come out as, and the rest of my family was there as well. So I had this incredible community and love and support around me, which was really powerful. And, and also, you know, the, the nurses and the, the physiotherapists, the hospital, and the doctors, you know, this incredible community of people who were able to support me through that process really helped. And then went back to Camor and having all my friends come and visit me and, you know, bring cookies and baked goods and all this, you know, it was, it was just, it was really, really lovely and very touching. And, um, you know, Laura, so rather than go for walks, Laura started taking me for pushes in my wheelchair and we, she'd push me out somewhere and we go and we sit and sketch outside, which was, you know, so I got to, you know, still be out in the mountains appreciating them in a completely different way, which is really powerful. Um, and then you know, it turned out I didn't actually have this fracture on my foot. So I was allowed to start walking again. And, uh, I remember going, um, one of the first things we did was we went fly fishing and I remember walking out into, uh, the river in Banff into the bow and, uh, took a couple steps and sunk into this pile of mud and I got stuck there because I wasn't strong <laughs> enough to be able to like lift my feet or my hip. And I was like, you know, like, and it was started snowing on us and sort of Laura's having like haul me out the mud and I was like, this is so ridiculous. <laughs> I was also loving it, but then it's time. You know, it, was, it was just so painful. Everything I was doing was just so painful and just ego crushing. Um, which is, you know, it, it, it was challenging for sure, but, um, it was also just so appreciative in that moment of everything I was able to do. And I really understood like almost instantly that I was fortunate to be able to do whatever I could. And, and I really made sure to have a lot of gratitude for that. Um, and I was also very careful not to set any arbitrary goals to myself, you know, telling myself that I had to be able to walk by this X date or had to be able to, to do, um, you know, run by a certain points because it, it, it'd be an artificial barrier. And if I didn't reach it, why, um, why would I set myself up for that possible disappointment? 
And at the same time, it was also, um, the, the, there's also the, the counterpoint to that too, where I wanted to make sure that I didn't um, limit myself because who knew what I'd be capable of doing long-term as well. So it was just, I just have to accept it day by day and you know see how my body was doing on a daily basis. Some days I felt amazing and I could go for longer walks. And other days my body just said, today you need to rest. And so I really had to tune into that. And um, we went spent quite a lot of time just floating in, in, in the pool in Camor. And I, I got to really know the, the senior citizen crew there, you know, the, the midday <laughs> floating group, which was awesome though too, because you know it's like me and you know the the, uh, the elder ladies comparing our our, our broken hip stories. <laughs> it was quite funny. Um, yeah, um, and then but from there, you know, I slowly regained strength over time and um, you know, started seeing some physiotherapy and doing um, some physiotherapy work and started to walk a bit more and. Um, after a bit of time, uh, after a couple months, um, it started snowing, and so I was able to go for some really basic uh, uh, ski tours, which was because it could stabilize my ankle, and it was quite gentle on my body as well. And so I slowly was able to regain my strength ski touring. And I, I couldn't really ski downhill. My hip wasn't strong enough, but I could get up stuff and then just sort of like snowplow fall my way down the hills. Um, and so, But I was able to get back out in the mountains, which gave me a lot of joy and I was able to do that all with Laura which was which is incredible and then from there in about November so that was it was only like two and a half three months later we went on a trip to uh, to Hawaii for a friend's wedding and um, from there I was able to start doing my first sort of real proper hikes in the mountains and we did a lot of body surfing and swimming and um, I actually ended up proposing when we were there as well uh, which was really, really, um, you know, a really, really special time, um, for, for real floor and me. And, um, I got to spend time with, meet some of her, some of her university friends, which was incredible. And just from there, just slowly increased my activity level. And, um, when I was still wheelchair bound, actually the, the hard rock lottery application came in and I actually signed up when I was still in hospital. So I was immobile when I signed up and I was like, this is ridiculous, <laughs> but there's a really small window when you can sign up. Um, and so I figured, might as well put the application in. Who knows what happens? You know, this is July of 2014. One, the odds of getting in are very slim. Um, two, if I did get in, you don't. There's no obligation to do it. But the only way you could ever possibly get in, and it's a really, really special event to me, is by applying. So might as well apply, see what happens, and then we'll go from there. <laughs> we'll worry about the actual like, details later. Yeah. So that sort of. Yeah. Um, and then through the winter, I just, you know, I kept ski touring and slowly started running and doing more and more activity, a bit of strength work and a lot, a lot of physio. And um, yeah, uh, watch myself get stronger and able to do more and more. And um, here I am, you know, uh, two days after finishing a hundred mile mountain race, which is still um, quite emotional and, and exhausted. And uh, yeah, so we, I'm sure we'll, we'll be getting into that shortly. When you got accepted into the Hard Rock uh, 100, did you kind of right away know that, okay, I entered, I got in, now I'm 100% going to do it? Or was there any sort of hesitation once you actually found out that you got accepted? Yeah, there, there, it, it wasn't 100% that I was going to be able to do it. But it was nice to have a goal, a very ambitious goal. I was terrified. And I, I didn't know if I'd actually be able to to make it to the start line and be finished. But I I do I I am quite um, I can be quite goal oriented. So it was nice to have something to look forward to down the road. And by the time I found out, I was already up back up hiking and walking and um, maybe even doing a little bit of light running. I don't remember exactly what the day I found out uh, when it was, 
but I, it wasn't like I was lying in a hospital bed when I found that I got into hard rock. I was in the hospital bed when I applied, but <laughs> not when I found that I got him. Um, so we'll find out. Yeah. Um, so at least I was able, it wasn't quite as outrageous to think that maybe I could go and do it at that stage. I was like, okay, I'm, I am somewhat physically capable still. You've got a, and you've got a, quite a relationship with the race. I mean, you've done it a couple of times before. Um, and tell us a little bit about your first experience at Hard Rock. That was 2014, right? Yeah, it was. So the first time at Hard Rock was wild. So Hard Rock is, is a really, really special race in the, the, the ultra running calendar. It's, um, you know, it's got over 10,000 meters of elevation gain and then 10,000 meters of elevation loss. So you're going over 13 passes that are, um, almost 4,000 meters tall. Uh, so, you know, higher than any peak in the Canadian Rockies. Um, and you're an average elevation of 11,000 feet, which is basically the highest mountains in the Canadian Rockies. And that's the average elevation. So there's extreme altitude, uh, really, really rugged mountain terrain. And it's, it's, you know, they only, they limit the field to 140 people, which is, um, so it's a really, really exclusive group. And you have to have done um, quite a challenging uh, mountain ultra just to be able to apply to get in. And uh, yeah, so in 2014, when I first got into the race, it had one of the best lineups ever. It had Killian Jornet and uh, Mike Foote and uh, Joe Grant from the U.S. Who, so some of the, and uh, Julien Charrier from France. So some of the top mountain runners from around the world there. And uh, yeah, I ended up having a phenomenal race. I wasn't sure what I was going to do, but I ended up finishing third and um, uh, sort of became a little bit notorious there for getting caught in a lightning storm at the top of a 14,000-foot peak, so a 4,500-foot mountain or a meter mountain. And uh, with my partner, um, my, my pacer at that point, Aaron Height, and we, um, we were stuck in a lightning storm on top of the mountain. And there's actually a, a lightning struck hit the ground beside us. And it went through the ground and went up through me, and it actually exploded in my headline halfway through the race, <laughs> which was terrifying. I know. Yeah. Uh, yeah. A lot of my friends' moms and wives don't let them play with me anymore in the mountains. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's all think a bit of a reputation here, apparently. Um, no, we were just, yeah, we got caught in the wrong place at the wrong time in, in that event. And uh, we were both really fortunate to, to come out of that alive as well. And uh, But ended up, uh, neither one of us was affected um, in any negative way. And we were both mm-hmm. able to uh, to get up and keep running. And um, yeah, I ended up running my way into third place in that race. And it was arguably my best, uh, one of my better ultra performances. And I was able to come back the, the following year in 2015. Um, they actually, they, they run the race in opposite directions every year. Um, so you get a very different feel for the race. And so I was able to go back in 2015 and repeat my third place performance, which was um, a, a massive honor as well, because it's a very, it's such a challenging race. And sort of proved to me that that first race was, you know, it was sort of where um, it was a true reflection of my ability on that course, which, uh, which I was quite proud of. Um, it's always nice to be able to repeat at a race like that. Yeah. So it's a very, very special place to me. And there's just this incredible sense of, it's more, it's why I keep calling it a race, but there's this, just this such profound sense of community around something like that. It's just so physically challenging and it's in such a beautiful setting that it really draws, um, a certain type of runner. It's not people who enjoy chasing splits and pace times and all that, because you throw all those concepts out the window. Yeah. I mean, even when you're winning the race, you are walking the majority of it because it's mm. so steep and hard and so high. Like the top, like Killian is not running the majority of that course. If, I mean, if he's running in 20, so a hundred miles in 24 hours, you're talking about four miles an hour. 
Right. Uh, yeah. You know, some of the best runners in the world. You know, like, it's uh, so it's it's really really slow if you think of it that way. But um, you add all the other variables in, and that's you know, and that's two hours faster than like the second place finisher. You know, it's, yeah, uh, to, to really put it in perspective. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. And so it really has a strong sense of community around it. So um, what happened last summer wasn't the first time that you've had a near-death experience. I mean, you just have mentioned getting hit by lightning. Um, So, you know, you have a couple of these very rare, very traumatic experiences, and I imagine that that would change your perspective quite a bit. Uh, So I'm just wondering in what ways um, these have kind of changed your course of actions going forward. I mean, I know you mentioned your proposal, for example. Um, Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so it's interesting. The the first the lightning strike one, um, I did a lot. I think it's really important after you've had a big incident to do um, to do a, like a synopsis of what happened and, and to think about it. And our decision making process um, wasn't like there, there's not much that would change about what we did. Um, you know, you, you probably shouldn't like you, you, we we kind of both knew that you should not be on top of a mountain in a lightning storm. But just um, the way that sort of the events unfolded that day. Um, there's not a lot that we could have done differently to have avoided what happened to us. Mm-hmm. Uh, just based on where we found ourselves when this, this storm blew through really quickly. Um, you're in mountains, weather can happen. That's sort of a natural part of it. And it, what we actually did, we, we probably did everything right. And that may also be why we, um, we survived, but, um, it wasn't, we were just in a really bad place. Uh, in terms of the, the accident that happened in Rogers Pass, that was, that was quite different. Um, one of the things that initially when I first had my accident, I thought I was really unlucky. Um, mm. you know, like, you know, this rock pulled out of me, but, and I found that to, you know, it sort of created this like sense of being a victim in me, which, uh, after I had a little bit of time to think about things and I, I got to, I talked to a, quite a lot of, um, mountain guides and sort of mountain mentors of mine. Um, and we really analyzed what happened and it was, it was quite empowering to figure out the, the mistakes that I made that, that led to, to the accident. Um, one, you know, you go into a dangerous mountain environment, so, you know, yes. you can't say that you're unlucky because you're already somewhere that's dangerous. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we were trying to move quickly through the mountains, so there's an element of risk to that as well. Um, I, I let my two friends go through an area, and I, I didn't test the rock properly myself. I wasn't really secure uh, when I pulled onto this rock. Um, so all these things are like little mistakes that I made. But what I found happened by analyzing that way and by not seeing myself as a victim anymore is it actually really made me, um, I think it allowed me to go back into the mountains because I wasn't quite as afraid of them anymore, but it's made me a lot more aware of um, how I interact and move through terrain. You know, like anything I do has real consequence out there. So you have to just be really, really precise with all of your movements and really, really think about how you move through the mountains. And whether or not, you know, the objective you're chasing is worth it as well. And like, mm-hmm. you know, reframing things. In that day, I had one set goal, but is that necessarily the right way of doing it? Because I think it forces you to, to push yourself. So like, say, rather than saying, I am going to complete the horseshoe traverse, say, you know, I'm going to go to Rogers Pass and go for a long run. And if we are able to do the horseshoe traverse, that's a success. But there's not only one degree of success, because if I'd gone and only done four mountains and then the weather had turned on us and we bailed, would that have been a failure? Probably not. It was being a smart thing to do. Does that make sense? Is that is there yeah, yeah. Yeah. a logic to what I'm saying there? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I guess, so it, I guess I'm also kind of yeah, asking so, how it changes your life perspective um, when you bounce back from a near-death experience. 
Yeah, so that was going to be the sort of yeah. the next um, the, the next lesson that I sort of learned from all this is um, when I was in the hospital, I was you know I, I was so vulnerable, and I had to really learn to be vulnerable and um, to just accept help from others. You know, I've I've always seen myself as quite an independent person and quite um, uh, uh, self reliant, mm-hmm. and I, I've really valued that and I've seen that in a strong way in myself. But I, I, I just couldn't, you know, like I, I had to have, literally have strangers wiping my ass um, <laughs> because I wasn't, I couldn't do it myself. And, you know, quite frequently and, you know, people changing me. And so I had to really learn to be vulnerable and just really rely on other people to do things. Mm. And I had to learn to ask for help as well when I was in there, which were, you know, very big lessons for me. And then I, I found myself incredibly lucky to have this the family that I do and had friends driving up from Vancouver to come and see me. And I was receiving these messages from people from around the world. And um, so I had this incredible level of community support around me. And, you know, I really, really learned that, you know, I took a lot of that for granted prior to my accident and, um, and just trying to show as much gratitude for them and just really feeling that love and accepting it. And I think that really helped with my healing process in, in quite a significant way. I mean, without that level of support and love, I, you know, I, I don't think I would have been able to do it. It, it gave me a lot of strength. Hmm. And... Um, and then from there also just, you know, it really, it, it also changed my, my general just attitude towards everything. Um, you know, you really, um, you really learn to appreciate the people that are close to you and because they're, they're very, you really rely on them to, to get through things. And, you know, I really want to just be able to, to repay that, my, my gratitude as much as possible. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Who was there with you at, uh, the hard rock hundred in terms of either at the finish line or, for your pace crew as, uh, for those who don't know, I guess you have, uh, pacers on course to help you throughout the race. And, uh, I'm sure you had some people very close to you help you out. Yeah. So you, so you do, you have a support crew who sort of helps you at different aid stations. And then starting about halfway in the race, you have a pacer who, who you you have the option of having a pacer to join you, which means you can have somebody to, um, because, because you're so remote in this race and the terrain is, so rugged you you have something with you for safety purposes and the course is marked but it's very sparsely marked so it was quite easy to go off course in this race and which means you could add hours onto your time and um having a pacer there can help sort of navigate a little bit as well and your decision making process when you're you know 15 16 17 hours into a race can be quite challenging um so the pacer in essence is there with you through the night portion because you end up running through the night um and so yeah i had the most incredible support crew i had um yeah. So Nick Elson and Dakota Jones were with me when I had my accident. Um, so they were there. I had Aaron Height who was with me when I had um, the lightning incident on Handy's Peak uh, two years before. And he's one of my uh, closest running friends. We've just really, really bond over. We've had this really strong connection through running, shared some incredible experiences. And then um, I also had uh, another pacer of mine um, from 2015. Her name's Anne-Marie Madden. She's a runner in Vancouver who... I hadn't actually even asked to be the crew, but she she just finished her medical residency and she had some time off and she loves hard rock, even though she's never competed in it. She just loves the, the ambiance there. And so she came out and so she was able to, to join my crew as well and just offered incredible support there. So I had this amazing team of people around me and then also just the whole community of runners there. Most of them knew my story and they also do things in the mountains. And I think it, it struck a lot of, struck home for a lot of people. And, um, so every single person out on the course who um, I'd see would, you know, pat me on the back and say, it's amazing to see you here. And then the same thing going through all the age stations was, 
it was really profound. And so it, it was really funny. Um, I obviously had a lot of time to think about this on the weekend, but um, just how much, how similar my recovery in hospital time was to uh, to running a hundred because you know, I was so reliant on these aid stations and these strangers, essentially, or many of these aid stations remind me a lot of um, the support network at the hospital, you know, like the um, the nursing staff and the cleaning staff who who really helped me in sort of these unsung heroes of, of events. And, you know, this is a profound event for me. And then, you know, that your nearest and dearest out there offering you support and um, helping you through your hard times, which was essentially my, my pacing crew uh, through the race. So there's this really, really strong tight analogy there which um yeah, is quite notable to me you uh you did quite well you um you finished 31st overall um took you 33 hours 17 minutes and 57 seconds i'm just looking at the results here yeah which is which is extraordinary um how do you feel about how do you feel like looking back now it's all it's pretty fresh in your mind i imagine it's only been a couple of days uh First of all, how how do you physically feel after that huge effort? And so then, what do you look like looking back on it now? Like, what are some some flashes of memories that stick out in your mind? Yeah, um, so I actually feel I feel really tired. Um, yeah. you know, it's a long time to be awake, um, and you know, I put my body through a lot. Um, I hurt my foot quite badly uh, about kilometer one hundred and ten, or uh, around kilometer one hundred. So I, I had about sixty five kilometers on a foot that was really really sore. And that was mentally really, really hard. Yeah. So I, I essentially walked the last 65 kilometers. I was going faster uphill than downhill in some sections because every time I to step on it, it would hurt. Um, and I had uh, Nick Ellison face me through that section, and he he had to be so incredibly patient. Um, he ended up being with me for almost 13 hours. It took me to put in. It took me four hours to do the last 11 kilometers, which were entirely downhill because I was walking so slowly. It hurt so much. Um, so that was just mentally exhausting to be in that much pain for that long. And, but, um, there, there's so many incredible moments outside of that, but also, um, there's some other real struggles as well. It was, it was something going into the race. I sort of promised myself that I wasn't there to compete, but I was there just to, to try to finish this and do whatever I could to finish it. But, you know, I, I realized once the gun went off that, you know, I, I, first of all, I lined up at the front of the, field which should have been my first indication that i hadn't quite lost my old ways yet <laughs> and you know the gun went off and you know i sort of found myself jogging along in top 10 for a while and chatting with old friends sort of where i i don't know it's just old habits die hard and that's where i sell myself or that's sort of where i just naturally gravitated towards and then slowly after maybe two and a half hours two hours i i couldn't stay with him anymore and i really my ego took a real beating it was really hard for me to accept that and I hadn't really counted on that. And um, I had a really big energy low through that. And I found it emotionally very difficult. And I actually started bawling. Like I, I stopped and I just started crying on the side of a trail because I, I had to let this go. And it, it, was, it was also, it was probably, it was quite cathartic, I think, as well. And um, at that moment, Anna Frost, who's one of the, the top female ultra runners in the world, she's won Hard Rock twice. She ran past me and she actually stopped and gave me a big hug. And, um, which is really powerful. And she's like, I don't, it's like, you don't have to do this. You have nothing to prove today. Everybody thinks it's incredible that you've even made it this far. And just giving me permission to let go was, was amazing. Um, so, and I'm, I'm actually tearing up right now, just thinking about all this. Yeah. Um, 
And then anytime I would come into an aid station, I, I hadn't thought about this part either, but because, um, because uh, I'm not sure exactly how to say this, but um, because I knew that it would be okay if I dropped out and everybody would understand, I really had a I had really had a battle with myself every time, and I was in so much pain and I was so tired. Every time I'd come into an aid station, I'd have this battle with myself about whether or not I should drop out there. Um, which I hadn't anticipated. I've never felt that way in a race before. Like if, there's obviously been moments when I've wanted to like, you know, like, Oh, I'm going too hard. This hurts. But I've always you know, like, it's never been a question as to whether or not I was going to finish. But in this one, you know, I was like, I just ran 50 K. That's amazing. Like, why do I need to do more? What am I trying to prove? And so I just ran 75 K. Why do I need to do this? What am I trying to prove? And then, you know, I'd run a hundred K. So I just yeah. continuously had this battle and, you know, and you know, the more tired I get, the more emotional you get, and the higher the wave, the bigger the waves get. Um, and then, as as my foot got more and more sore, and you know, I was walking slower and slower, and I'm like, "Why well, am I putting Nick through this? Like, Nick doesn't have to be doing this. Like, you know, if I stop now, like, big deal. Like, you know, uh, you know, I, I, Nick won't have to be walking slower than he's ever gone before. It was it was almost comical at times. This <laughs> um, to be going this slowly. And then all these people are passing me. They're all congratulating me on being out there. And I'm like, yeah, but I just want to run. I just want to be able to like finish this thing. Uh, and I want to be done. And I was like, and I, I, my body's never really failed me before, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And like, I've always been able to count on my body's ability to do things. And here it was, it was falling apart on me. And people were passing me and running. And I just, I was started getting jealous of people. I was like, I just want to run so I can be done sooner and put myself out of this misery that I'm feeling right now. And so I, I felt quite sorry for myself for a while. And I hadn't, I hadn't, I hadn't, I hadn't expected that, you know, cause I'm still in this incredibly beautiful setting surrounded by like incredible people, like just the most amazing people in the world out there. Um, and I'm, you know, I was sitting there feeling, and, and so I, I get mad at myself for feeling sorry at myself. I was like, you can't be allowed to do that. Like you chose to be here. So I was having these like, these, these incredible dialogues with myself. And it was just this, um, mental i don't know this this huge mental battle but at the same time like being proud of myself for doing what i was doing but then also thinking i was just a stubborn idiot for being out there and (laughs) hurting myself this much it was yeah it was really it was a really strange strange place but um you know i i just kept putting one foot in front of the other and just figured if i'm moving forward i'm making progress i'm moving forward i'm making progress and no matter how small the steps i was moving forward and um, finally, you know, I made it I had two miles to go and there's a big river crossing, which is quite like way steep river crossing. And um, you, you, you basically have left the mountain at that point, you cross a road and then it's um, you're walking home and all of my friends and support crew were there at the river crossing and they walked the last two miles with me, which took us about 45 minutes to give you perspective. Wow. <laughs> and this is an essentially flat 45, you know, <laughs> flat two miles. Um, and that's how slowly I was walking, but I got to share that with him. We just sort of joked because by that point I knew I'd make it. Mm-hmm. And, um, we finally got into town. Um, a lot of the other competitors, these people who just, you know, running for 30 hours, you know, came out to cheer and support me on. And I just like started crying. Like it was, it was really, you know, I just tried to hug as many people as I could and high five as many people as I could and thank as many people as I could for being there for me. And, um, I finally got to, to kiss the rock, which is how you finish this race. And, uh, it was an amazing feeling to do that. Yeah. Um, 
I want to know about your family and the people who are close to you. I know that when you were hurt last year in hospital, it was uh, a rare time when everyone kind of had the chance to get together again. Um, so did you tell them that you signed up for this while you're still in the hospital or what was their reaction when they found out? <laughs> like I can imagine that part, actually they're not even going to be surprised. <laughs> Yeah, no, I, I'd say that they probably weren't all that surprised, um, and they probably all had a level of doubt in their minds. And, they, and um, yeah, no, but I've got an incredibly supportive family, and uh, you know, incredibly par- supportive partner in Laura, and you know, they also know just how important these things and how special these things are to me. Um, and so I'm really, really lucky to have in my life, and you know, I, I get to share it with them as well. I mean, you know, Laura and I do a lot of things in the house together. We've had some very profound shared moments together out there. And, um, and, you know, my family supported me for almost all my, my entire racing career. And so I think they probably thought it was a tad ambitious. Um, but I think they also knew that I would probably do what I could to get there, but I was also going to make smart, smart choices. And I, I told them, um, I think I made it quite clear, but if I wasn't physically able to do it, I, I would know, like, I know my body mm-hmm. quite well. Um, mm-hmm. even though I had to relearn how to use it in the body that I have now isn't the one that I knew a year ago. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I still think that, you know, still have a, a fairly good sense of what my body is capable of doing and what I'm capable of doing. And I wouldn't have attempted something that I really couldn't do, but they also assumed it was going to be a very, very big challenge for me. But interestingly, talking to, to Aaron Height and Nick in Dakota, they, yeah, because they, they don't see me on a day to day basis, you know, they, they kind of keep track loosely. But yeah, they didn't know if I'd be able to. To, to get through it. You know, they, they obviously have a lot of faith in me as a, as an athlete. So, but yeah, they, they, they all admitted that they thought it was probably a tad overly ambitious and maybe a bit unnecessary to do, but they were also <laughs> going to support me if it's something I wanted to try. And I was really lucky to have them there. I, so you've gone head to head with Killian Jornet multiple times now in the past. What was, I guess your first reaction to hearing that he dislocated his shoulder, popped it back in and still won the race? <laughs> Yeah, well, to be honest, not, not a ton of surprise. <laughs> no, he's, uh, he's he's an exceptional athlete, and he's just as exceptional a person as well. He's just a, a really lovely person. I do have a funny story about uh, Killian and I, though. Um, is in the the race briefing before the race, um, you sit in this in a high school gym, and we were both sitting on a plastic table, you know, like one of those like, plastic picnic tables. And uh, so the two of us are sitting on it, and in front of the entire gym, the picnic table collapses, and we both fell to the ground. <laughs> so obviously, like everybody around me starts making jokes about, no, make sure you don't hang around Adam during the race. Yeah, so oh. I was like, and I may have just hurt, you know, one of the greatest mountain athletes in the world. <laughs> and I was like, uh, this seems kind of obvious. Maybe I should take this as a sign. Um, but no, what Killian did out there is legendary and not surprising. And I can't imagine how much pain he's in and how much he had to endure, but. He really is a, a very special athlete, and it's um, it's been an incredible honor to have competed with him at this stage, and to be able to be in races with somebody like that because he really um, has redefined what um, people are capable of doing in the mountains. And uh, I have a lot of admiration for him, and as I said, I've also got to know him on a personal level, and he's a incredible person as well and there's it was also having so many other canadian athletes on the course as well. I mean, gary robbins was there cheering as well and gary's paced me at hard rock before as well and his energy was just was amazing as always just you know he was one of the first people to hug me as i was crossing the line he was bawling um being the person that he is and he he put up a, a beautiful post and 
um, online as well about the experience, what it meant to him, and you know, share that with me personally. And um, so, you know, a lot of thanks to him for being there as well, and uh, all the other Canadians that I've received messages from, um, and the entire running community has just been so so powerful. It's it's awesome. Final question for you, Adam. Um, you're sitting in your office in Calgary a couple of days after a massive accomplishment. Um, and like so many other runners, you probably feel both incredibly elated and also a sense of emptiness that we all feel when we've uh, accomplished something, and particularly in your case. Um, what are you going to fill that emptiness with? What's um, What do you want out of uh, the future um, well, the orig- the initial emptiness is just like the sheer hunger that I feel at the moment. So I, like, <laughs> I think you need to just like eat as much food as possible for about a week. Um, but uh, no, I, I don't think you're quite talking about that. Um, so I, yeah, yeah. no, I'm uh, um, I'm getting married in two weeks, uh, which is I'm, uh, it's going to be phenomenal. Uh, I had one big role and one big um, promise going into Hard Rock is that I'd be able to dance at our wedding. Um, and so I'm fairly confident despite having a slightly sore foot, that I'm going to be able to, to dance at our wedding, um, which I'm really, really, really looking forward to. And, um, my family's flying out, uh, for that as well. And same with Laura's family and all of our good friends. So really looking forward to celebrating with them. Um, and you know, the, I, I don't have any other events planned for the year. Um, not, uh, I didn't, I didn't want to commit to anything. Uh, because I didn't know how my body would react to hard rock. And I didn't know if I'd want to after doing hard rock. It, it may have also just been a sense of, you know, I've done that and it's time to move on. And I, I still don't know where I stand with that. Um, I do have a lot of mountain objectives I want to keep learning about. And I want to, um, and I want to keep expanding my knowledge of, of um, mountain activities. Um, so, you know, working with mentors and uh, taking courses about mountain safety, and trying to be a big advocate for mountain safety. And I want to just keep getting out and enjoying the incredible country that we live in and uh, exploring new places. Cause that's ultimately what's most important to me is uh, getting out there and just, I just get so much joy and satisfaction from moving through natural environments and being able to see these incredible, just the sheer wonder that comes with that. Um, Laura's actually going to be working up in the Yukon for August and September. And so I'm going to go up and spend some time with her up in Whitehorse, which I've never been to, and it seems like just the most amazing place to go and explore. Um, and we'll see what see where my body's at, and hopefully I can do a bit of running when we're up there. And if not, then you know a lot of walks and bikes and some kayaking or canoeing and just whatever anything I can do to keep moving in wild spaces. That's sort of ultimately my my big goal, and I want to be able to do that for as long as possible. Adam Campbell, thank you so much for joining us. Nice, thanks, Adam. Thank you. Oh, thank you, guys. And thank you for listening. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at The Shakeout Podcast. And be sure to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, and wherever else you listen to your podcasts. If you enjoyed listening to this and our other episodes, please leave a review for us on iTunes. We are bringing you this podcast weekly. If you like it and are wondering how you can support us, please subscribe to Canadian Running Magazine in print or the digital edition. This certainly helps us bring you more great content. And finally, we would like to thank the Ontario Media Development Corporation for their contributions to this podcast. Thanks for listening.